It is Friday, May 8th, 2020, and coming up on the tune-up, the Korean Baseball League kicked off this week on ESPN. Benny and I are picking teams and maybe even putting some money on the line. Who knows? And also, we have a beef between two aging rock stars on social media. Oh, it's exciting, I know. We're going to break down all the news and give insight to life on the road. All that, plus your other traditional favorites. Keep it locked on the tune-up. Welcome on into the tune-up. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the snare campaign provocateur, Mr. He Puts Pants On Because He's a Human Being During Quarantine. It's Benny Horowitz. It's true. Every day. I got to tell you, and I really only use the the, uh, the the nickname portion to bring up a beef that I have with people in general right now. Uh-huh. You wear nice shorts and pants, at least when you leave the house. I don't care what you do in the privacy oh, yeah. of your own, own home. But I got to tell you, people out here bumming it. And the first month, okay. But we're getting to summer, and it's not acceptable. That's yeah, my you know, gas bag yeah. take. You know what? That's a weird cultural thing, right? Because, like, I grew up in an area with, like, actual white trash people. And there's, like, a dividing line there of the people who are willing to leave the house in sweatpants and basketball shorts and the people who aren't. And like, and I remember even uh, like a decade ago when people had these like uh, designer mullets, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. I actually had like a real mullet when yeah. I was 11, and I didn't know it was bad. And I'm not gonna like willingly put one on my head again to try to be cool because I know firsthand it's not cool. So I feel like some people don't realize the cultural element to leaving the house like that. Like, like in certain areas. You're waving a flag of exactly what you are if you're doing that. But I have been told by my friend uh, Hammer, who runs Violent Gentleman, the great clothing company, mm. he has said that my views on outdoor sweatpants are a little draconian mm. and a little archaic. Apparently, the world has changed, and sweatpants of a certain ilk are now acceptable. So there's a type of sweatpant apparently lululemons or something oh yeah that cost yeah. that costs enough money that you're actually allowed to leave the house in them i guess if your sweatpants have a couple zippers or something on them now you're you're straight so he did he did sort me out with that all right benny i'm about to play some africa and you know what that means it's time <laughs> for this day in music history all right benny what do you got so, I found a fun one. In 1990, Tom Waits was awarded $2.5 million when a Los Angeles court ruled that Frito-Lay unawfully used the Waits uh, sound-alike in its Doritos ads. And I was like, I'd never heard of this before. i got to look into this story, and it's pretty funny. So, in the mid-'80s, a company was hired to develop a radio spot for, uh, uh, you're probably too young for this, Salsa Rio Doritos, mm. which I don't, I think they're called something else now, but it's like when you want a little extra kick to your Dorito. And Waits at the time had a song that was actually parodying Ad Pitchman. It was called Step Right Up, and it was on the uh, 76 album Small Change. Uh, now, the company that was hired to do the ad decided to spoof this song in the, uh, in the ad, and the company auditioned gravelly voiced blues singers and found a man Stephen Carter 
who is a Dallas musician who covered Tom Waits songs and also did Tom Waits impersonations. So they didn't go too far out of their way to find someone who sounded different. Apparently in 1988, the ad goes out and Tom Waits was uh, doing press at an L.A. radio station and heard it <laughs> and was obviously a little displeased. Uh, in 1981, Tom Waits did a voiceover for a dog commercial and very much regretted it, subsequently saying he'd rather have a hot lead enema than ever do ads again. So when he heard his song at the radio station that day, he was worried that his fans would think he went back on that. So he took him to court. In court, he was full Tom Waits. Uh, he, he mocked the ad as a, as a corn chip sermon and was awarded... $2.6 million. It was, it was an interesting suit because, you know, as you know, at the time, Tom Waits didn't technically own his song. The label did. So since it was himself suing, there was a couple legal gray works there for him to get paid. But I thought that was a funny story. Yeah. Tom Waits suing Doritos. <laughs> I mean, I like both things, oh, to be honest. It's very American. All right, Benny, on this day in 1954, the BBC Radio in the UK banned the Johnny Ray song Such a Night after listeners complained about its suggestiveness. Now, I was <laughs> all ready to, like, rip the BBC and all this stuff. But I got to say, I looked up the lyrics to the song. Kind of creepy. Let me just take you to Troubling? the first Yeah, g take, give me a verse. All right, the first, the right off the bat, he's not even messing around here. He's like, such a night, it's such a night, sweet confusion under the moonlight. Don't know what yeah. the fuck that means. Okay. Such a night, such a night to steal away. The time is right. Okay. She's confused and being stolen from. Yeah. Go on. Not exactly what you want yeah. if you're, uh, you know, if if you're a man in any era, because you know, respect. Yeah. No bueno. Your eyes caught mine, and at a glance, <laughs> do you like the slam poetry I'm doing here? Yeah. For the yeah, tune-up listeners, you let me know that this was my chance. Okay. Oh, so the eyes just told everything. Yeah. Which means she didn't say yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oy, Zero consent oy. here. But you came here with my best friend, Jim, and here I'm trying to steal you away from him. All right. So, yeah, we're pro-BBC here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the BBC, oh, man, outside of censoring Benny, you know, this is this was the right call. I mean, maybe, Amer you know, I always think maybe American radio should... What, what's that Christmas song that's that's deeply troubling? Oh, uh, Baby, it's ba cold outside? Baby, it's cold outside, yeah. Yeah, maybe, you know, if the BBC got a hold of that one early on, maybe they would have made the right choice. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so that's my submission. Uh, wow. You know... It's old, a good submission. Old songs never continue to surprise me, but... Well, let's say men in the 50s weren't necessarily uh, enlightened. Okay. Enlightened. There we go. <laughs> All right, Benny, first topic here, and let's take it to South Korea, because Please. that's the only place where sports are happening at the current moment, and I don't want to get into, like, the analytics and, like, who's the best team in South Korea. I want us as a podcast to pick a team to support. So we have the Doosan Bears, founded in 1982. We have the Kia Tigers. I love any time a name gets in front of a team, except for the New York Red Bulls. They were also founded in 1982. The LG Twins. The uh, Lot, I believe that's the athletic sporting goods company. Uh, the Lot Giants, uh, or Lot T, if you want to take it that way. We have the Samsung Lions, which just sounds wholesome. Uh, the Hanwha Eagles, founded in 1986. 
And I love any time you get a team with two letters and then like a city name. So SK <laughs> Wyverns, that's not how you say that at all, but they were founded in the year 2000. So good for them. And then we have uh, founded in 2008, the Kewoom Heroes. Gotta love a hero. Always gotta love a hero. Uh, shout out to RJ Anderson. RJ Anderson holding it down for them over there. And uh, then we have the NC Dinos, the NC-17 Dinos <laughs> over here. And by the way, uh, their mascot's nickname, if you thought Sly the Fox was good, their mascot's nickname, Swole Daddy. Swole Daddy! <laughs> yes! Oh no, I have to, might have to switch my pick here. <laughs> when, you're, uh, when you're an expansion team in 2013, you gotta come strong. It's the age of the internet. Oh, uh, little... <laughs> yeah. If, if you're wondering what to get me for my birthday, it's a fucking some small daddy gear, man. Please. <laughs> then uh, the other team we have is the KT Wiz. They were founded in 2015. By the way, oh man, could you imagine the commercials if like the Wiz, the, uh, the electronics store was still around? Yes, that's uh, Wiz. You gotta love the KT Wiz, right? 2015. And that's it. So, Benny, what team have you picked as your KBO Korean team uh, for the next few weeks until we get sports back in this country? Well, first off, I just want to say I like what's happening with Korean baseball. I think it's cool, and I've looked into it a little bit. From what I can gather, some people describe the MLB as opera and the KBO as rock and roll. You know what I mean? They got cheerleaders. They get a cheer master who stands on a pedestal, getting the crowd going. It's a young crowd. It's loud and it's crazy. And most importantly, there's bat flipping. And it's acceptable. And I love bat flipping. It's the coolest thing. I wish MLB adopted it and people wouldn't get fastballs to the head for doing cool things after they hit home runs. But uh, after looking into it, it actually was an easy choice. Okay. The Kiwoom Heroes are my new team. With a farm system run by Yankee, former Yankee Shane Spencer. Oh, no. Get out yes! of here. Yes! Shane Spencer. The Heroes play a style of baseball slightly more reminiscent of the American game. And uh, a reporter who covers them likened them to be the Tampa Bay Rays. Okay. They're tough. They're upstart. And uh, come on, Shane Spencer. I didn't need more than that. So, oh. Kiwoom Heroes, sign me up. So, oh. who's your team? Uh, so, so the team that I was looking at is the Hanwha Eagles. Um, you know, they're a team who uh, hasn't won a playoff series since 2007. But, you know, they're like one of these teams that I feel like there's a lot of upstarts in this league. And it, it's so interesting when you look at the stadiums of, of these teams because, like, there's some that are, like, minor league ballparks. Then you have some that play in these, like, massive domes that are, like, 22,000 seats. So it's, in, in a lot of ways, leagues kind of like MLS. But, you know, the Shane Spencer thing threw me off because I was all ready to give you, like, the Hanwha Eagles. You know, they're, they're in third place. They're not in first place. Uh, the KT Wiz looks strong, though. I mean... Like, nobody beats the Wiz, Benny. Like, you you know this, I know this. How can you go against the Wiz? Uh, I, I mean, I guess the American economy did. But, um... The... Well, you know me, I'll never support an Eagle. They were the That's only true. one when I went through this list that was just ruled out from the get. Just I, because of their name. I mean... But... I can never just sit there and go, go Eagles. Exactly. I, I just puke in my mouth a little. I can't do it. You know, I love the color scheme, though. You know, the black and orange, you know... Uh, 
paying homage, I'm sure, to uh, the Jersey City Giants of yesteryear. Then there's also, like, I don't know. Dude, Swole Daddy is pretty hard to top. All right. Make your pick. All right. Who is it? Who's your team? We're doing a short podcast today. I'm trying to stretch it out for the people. You an Eagles fan? Oh, you know, you put me on the spot. (laughs) Screw it. Going to go with my initial impression. Nobody beats the Wiz? You know, I'm going to go with my initial impression. The black and the orange. Hanwha Eagles. Fly Eagles fly. I hate myself for saying that. But let's go. Good. Now we now we actually have a beef <laughs> yeah. with the KBO. That's good. <laughs> you know, one thing I was I was hearing. I listened to a couple specials on the KBO, and one thing I thought was interesting is that you know, as I already stated, it's it's the rock and roll league. It's raucous. They don't care about bat flipping. And apparently, there's been enough, you know, uh, Korean players that have played in the U.S., American players who have come to play in Korea that some of the old-school MLB stuff is starting to pervade into the Korean League, and, and people are starting to uh, take the old boys' club rules a little too seriously over there. I'd like to see it stay rogue. Yeah, right. uh, MLB has its own fucking problems being boring, and if you can present baseball with some sort of an alternate-looking product, I don't think it could hurt right now, and I think baseball should probably learn from it other than the other one adapting. By the way, I just want to bring this to your attention about your boy Shane Spencer. Uh, in 2019, in the KBO, suspended 70 games after a DUI. Shane Spencer, you know, there's some sake or something over there. Who knows what the blood alcohol in Korea is? It's probably no, Jesus, I don't know. So, okay, so an alcoholic and an embezzler are the, is the team I chose. I love Let's it. Oh, Kiwoo Heroes. It. Right. I love it. That's that's the entire NFL. Anyway, <laughs> it's about the halfway point of the podcast. Have your takes ready. Have your gas ready because I don't want to be a gas bag anymore. A gas bag! Alright, Benny, who has been lighting it up on the gas bag circuit for you this week? It's an interesting one, because if you asked me a year or two ago, I would have been on the other side of this argument, because Charles Oakley, you know, Nick's legend, who was forcefully kicked out of Madison Square Garden a couple years ago, started to really garner favor with the general public again. Then the Last Dance documentary comes out, and... You know, he was a bull. He gave Michael Jordan shit. So Oakley's kind of getting popular again, out of nowhere. And then he just has to fucking rip Patrick Ewing again. He comes out and he says, in regards to the last dance, the Bulls had Michael and we had Patrick. It's like seeing Beyonce and going to see someone trying to be Beyonce. That's what he said about Patrick Ewing. There's a couple things that really sit wrong with me about this. A... Michael Jordan is Beyonce. Patrick Ewing is not. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like there was Michael Jordan, there was everyone else. I don't know how many, uh, a decade of basketball you didn't need to see that. Patrick Ewing was a very, very good player, an all-star, the Knicks superstar. But there was 10 guys in the league better than him that Michael Jordan dismissed. So, like, you can't say that Patrick Ewing should have taken out Michael Jordan, especially by himself. Secondly, in the series he's referring to, Patrick Ewing averaged 26 points, 11 boards on 53% shooting. Nothing to scoff at. You know what I mean? Even if you 
say he he lacked a little toughness, he lacked a little fortitude. I could easily see that being a knock against Ewing. He kind of had it. You know what I mean? Ewing mm-hmm. doesn't he didn't have that edge sometimes. You know what I mean? And sometimes he couldn't put it over the top. And he also didn't play in the 99, uh, the 99 finals because of an injury. And the same guy who was saying Cassini's dispersion, Charles Oakley, scored eight points a game on under 44% shooting and 10 rebounds a game. Now, obviously, Oakley wasn't uh, known as a scorer. He's known as a defender and rebounder. But that being said, that's the last fucking person I want to hear from in regards to the fact that Patrick Ewing, your best player, the only reason you were in the finals in the first place was the reason you lose. So, Oakley, this week, you are the gas bag. A couple years ago, I would have been supporting you against James Dolan. Now you're both on my shit list. <laughs> yeah, I definitely say there, you know, if, if we're using this Beyonce comparison, then, you know, Jordan's Beyonce and like Patrick Ewing is like Fifth Harmony. <laughs> Here's my gas bag of the week. Does the name Brad Parscale ring a bell to you at all? Certainly doesn't. All right, well, apparently, and I just learned this today, too. Apparently, he is the uh, the Trump 2020 campaign manager. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was on Twitter, like they all are, bousting about uh, their upcoming campaign. And he compared the campaign to the Death Star, uh, which, okay, cool. You're trying to capitalize on the May the 4th thing. We Wait, all... didn't that get blown up? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly <laughs> my point. So how big of a gas bag, how big of a Francesa-level gas bag do you have to be to make this comparison to uh, to something that didn't exactly end well? But hey, so Brad, just tone it down. We don't want to hear all about your plans to squash the resistance, if you will. Yeah, Brad, do me a favor. Just watch the movie to the end, guy. You know? Jeez. And and if you didn't watch the movie to the end, you know, maybe just watch one of the thousands yeah. of Star Wars movies. Yeah, give it a quick Google, huh? Come on, Brad. We, yeah, we need more than you. He's he's too busy out there uh, uh, gaslighting cucks or whatever the fuck those people do. I don't know. Gaslighting. <laughs> <laughs> It's time to head to the second half of the podcast, which today will be the musical part of the podcast. And we have a beef between Liam Gallagher and Mark Lanigan. And Benny, I feel like every time Liam tries to make a joke or he perceives it as a joke, it always goes over his the other person's head and they usually get offended. Mark Lanigan, you know, of the Screaming Trees, he's still holding a grudge against Liam Gallagher over his spat from 1996. Mm-hmm. First off, I just want to get in- into you with this. Do you still have any grudges that you're holding from 1996? <laughs> from 96? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No. Yeah, if you do, you didn't grow up. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I mean, but that's not to say, like, you know, if you're a grown person who meets another grown person and that grown person does a bunch of things where you get to determine they're an asshole, that doesn't mean 22 years later they're not an asshole anymore. You know, so if there is a you know, unresolved beef between these two. Uh, yeah, like, they're both still assholes. And they have a problem with each other. So that's the issue here. But no, I, I don't know. Actually, to honestly answer your question, if I really thought about it enough, there's some people I wrote <laughs> off in about 1996 and never made it back on. You know, there are rules in this life, Denny. Sometimes when you cross certain lines... It's over. Someone, someone's a habitual line stepper or something like that. You just got to remove people, you know? 
So, yeah, maybe I have some beefs going back to 1996. The funny thing about this one is, like I said, it, it's almost like watching, like, uh, two really, like, like puffy, no-neck jocks, like, fight in high school. It's like, it's like I'm just going to sit back, eat some popcorn, and let these two duke it out. Because both of them are kind of notorious jerks. You know, like, they, they both have um, serious histories with abuse uh never have gotten along with anybody they've ever played with um and have essentially like blown up everything they've ever been a part of the one thing that i need to set straight about this after i learned a little bit about the story is that you know 8 days into this tour mark uh oasis stopped the tour mark lanigan contests that they stopped the tour because he was afraid to like see Mark Lanigan again and like he was going to get his ass kicked or something. That's from Mark Lanigan's point of view. Now, I can say that w- with full certainty that an Oasis tour is not being canceled because one of the singers is feeling strange about one of the openers. You know what I mean? If that were actually the case, the Screaming Trees aren't on the tour anymore and Oasis is still playing. So I don't think that was the case. And I think if you just do the timing here, Liam was a goddamn mess on this tour, you know? Yeah, so they had, a, you know, the seventh show of that tour was a notoriously bad show in New York City where Liam was a, a mess. And then the tour subsequently got canceled and the last five shows were canceled. So I've seen Oasis. Anybody who really pays attention to that band knows that Noel... It's kind of the true talent. He's the songwriter. He's the one, you know, when I saw them in 2000, the best part of the show easily was when the rest of the band went off and Noel just did a bunch of songs by himself. So it seems very obvious to me that the tour got canceled because Liam was a mess, couldn't handle the situation, and not because he had some, like, sort of ongoing beef with the singer of The Screaming Trees. So, Lanigan's book, Sing Backwards and Weep, recounts a story from 1996 uh, from that tour that you were talking about. And as you mentioned, uh, Liam mocked uh, their band name by calling them the Howling Branches. Uh, and, you know, brought Pretty Lanigan, funny. Kind yeah, of funny. Yeah, that, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's pretty funny. That almost feels like more of a, a compliment and like a sign of, of respect that he would even bother making fun of you for it. But uh, so, Lanigan. A, dr- a drunk Brit ba- breaking your balls yeah. is them liking you. Exactly. You know? <laughs> so, he called Gallagher a fucking idiot, which. Gosh, someone's going to save that drop of me saying that. Uh, and set a time and date to duke it out because these two guys who, you know, decent amount of money are totally going to fight it. Like, come on. So that didn't happen. A lot of expletives go- going back and forth. A um, lot of, you know, insulting mothers, stuff like that. So as you said, the tour ended, but definitely had nothing to do with the beef right here, which apparently now is raging on on Twitter because quarantine brings out the best and the worst of people, as we're seeing. So what what better place to settle this than on Twitter in 2020? Yeah, and not only that, but it's like literally Mark Lanigan not just taking shots, but literally like being like, hey, dude, fight me, (laughs) which is just the dumbest shit. Like, come on, man, like grow up. But like I said, this is like watching two jocks fight in high school because, I mean, I... As a musician, Mark Lanigan is head and shoulders above anywhere Liam Gallagher ever was. Mm. Mark Lanigan is a legit songwriter, you know, and you can't take that away from him. He's just always been a super broody guy. And even in 96, 
he was fighting with his own band. And, you know, my mom uh, was actually really into the Screaming Trees. And we used to, to listen to their uh, breakthrough album, Sweet Oblivion, kind of wondering a lot, like, why they weren't as big as their counterparts at the time. Like, why didn't they break as big as a Nirvana or Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains or bands like that? And, you know, part of it was just the the interior stuff that happened with that band and them kind of shooting themselves in the foot and Lanigan having a bad, you know, sense of things. So, like, it, it doesn't surprise me that, that two guys, I'm assuming in their 50s, 22 years later, are, like, calling each other's pussies on Twitter and stuff. I mean, it's kind of beautifully fitting, isn't it? Well, I feel let's like, have him out. Yeah, let's, exactly. Let's, celebrity deathmatch kind of stuff. I love or, this. Or, Benny, see, here's how you got to angle in, in the content business. Come on, tune up, you cowards. Settle oh, this on the tune up. Here's your arena. <laughs> Get on here. You know, there's a little tidbit, though, I found out uh, was Josh Homie from Queens of the Stone Age, you know, many, mm-hmm. many other bands. He was actually touring and playing with the Screaming Trees at oh. the time. Pretty random. Okay. No idea. So if you see a very large, young, handsome guitar player in those videos, it was Josh Homme. <laughs> but there's another angle of this that I want to get into. It's the touring angle. It's the headliner band. It's the opening band. And I personally, from afar, thought that the the opening bands and like the headliners didn't really commingle like this. But apparently, you know, this story gives the indication that maybe there was some more uh, interaction than I thought. Kind of take us inside what that very kind of inside baseball relationship is like you know what that that's where it's completely dependent on the band and it is hard to say you know like a lot of bigger bands make it a point to leave their backstages open enough they share catering with other bands they share uh you know the same hallway with other bands and and it's actually like a communal experience, especially if you're going on tour together. I mean, more often than not, if you're going to be in the same building for many weeks at a time, you're going to have some exposure. But some bands and some artists are much more, uh, like, willing to give themselves than others. You know, let me give you just this AB, right? So Gaslight did three shows with Soundgarden once. Uh, we never met someone from Soundgarden in those three days. You know, like, we opened for them in the same building, their crew took care of most of their stuff, and they were kind of showing up right before the show, leaving right after the show. And as much as I did, I, I maybe met Matt Cameron and shook his hand once, but wanted to meet him and they weren't around, you know? And then we do a show with the Foo Fighters, like, many years later, and we're sitting in the backstage, we're getting ready, and who pops in but Dave Grohl? He's just like, hey guys, <laughs> what's going on? You know, and he says hi, and he comes over. So it's really just dependent on the person and the place, really. Like, you know, the Foo Fighters very easily, they're probably setting up their production where an opening band can't get back into their business, you know, um, for any number of reasons. But you know, he made the outward effort of making sure that you meet the opening band and stuff like that, because there's supposed to be a relationship there. So I think on the larger level it gets, it takes like a little more work for people to hang out. Like it takes like a, hey, we're having a a dinner on an off night. We're going out for drinks on an off night. And someone's trying to bring the crews together or something. But 
if it's just like work, it's pretty easy to, you know, unless you really make an effort to go out of your way, it can be really easy to keep a very cursory relationship with the people you're around. So if a band has a closed off off stage, kind of a sign that there's trouble in paradise is what I'm getting from that. No, I wouldn't say that. No. I wouldn't say that because the thing you got to realize about some of these bands is the production is massive. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, you know, we play a festival with Metallica, you know, we're showing up and we're like, what's the Wi-Fi password? <laughs> and we're fighting with like 120 other musicians to try and check our email. And Metallica shows up with a router with only a Metallica code. You know what I mean? But it's because they have like four tour managers, two accountants, uh, you know, any number of like business personnel that are there and everywhere they go is sort of like this like mobile company. And every time they set up, there's kind of like things at work there that have nothing to do even with like gear and stuff like that. So if a band like Metallica is at a festival, they're still Metallica. I grew up listening to Metallica. So even though I'm in a band that's playing that festival and we're technically peers, I could still fanboy over Metallica pretty fucking hard. Mm. So just because they're surrounded by 100 musicians doesn't mean they're getting away clean from kind of like annoying fanboy shit too. So, you know, there's there's levels to it. But I wouldn't say that if a band's closed off, um, that that's what they're going through. Especially when people get older, they start bringing families, they start doing this stuff. It turns just into like, kind of like a compound, like your own compound, you know? Like your your own little village for the day. That's so interesting because my experience with like backstage stuff is like courtside and like, in like the concourses of like sporting events where like the media and stuff like that. And I always kind of thought that a backstage of like a festival and stuff was kind of like, Oh, everyone's in like the same area. There's like a media room where there's like food and people kind of just hanging out and stuff like that. And you can really have access to anybody as long as you pretend like, like you're supposed to be there. So it sounds like it, it's a, a little different. I mean, cause like you could be in a media room and like, like Stephen A's there, like Rachel Nichols is there and you could just come up and say, Hey, and it's like no big deal. So one time in Milwaukee, uh, Clyde Fraser just sitting right there having a meal. I walk up, we start talking, and I almost kind of fanboyed a lot like you almost did with, with Metallica, but yeah. with a lot less security. But I mean, it does sometimes show you, though, like, you know, I, I like seeing it and I try not to judge too much, but there's a couple parallels, you know, like uh, we get to a festival once and we see signs at every gate with a bunch of photos on it. And it's from Lincoln Park. And basically, Lincoln Park had instructed every entrance in the festival to be like, do not stop these guys. Do not check their laminates. Basically, memorize these faces and let them through. You know, which is like the most ridiculous shit to ask a security guard who's getting paid like $11 an hour, whoever knows, to actually memorize people's faces and then try to see it, like, it's a lot easier to just hold a laminate up to somebody. So that's, like, an example of either a band being very out of touch with themselves or being out of touch with their own business. Because there's a chance a band like that doesn't even know that happens. Mm. Now, on the, on the ancillary to that, you know, I did Soundwave Festival in Australia and Slash's Snake Pits on it. You know, Slash's... Mm the biggest rock star. Like, how can you yeah. get much bigger than Slash? And every single day, he's poking around catering. He's poking around all the sort of communal parts of the festival. 
He has security with him. You know, a guy just in case, like, something goes off. But he's taking pictures with everyone, talking to everyone. You know, these are people in very successful bands who would still fucking slash. You still want to talk to him and get a picture with him, you know? And he was totally open to it and totally cool. If someone got a little too pushy, you know, a security guard would be like, oh, you know, we need to get out of here. But everything was fine. And there's better ways to deal with it if you're still just, like, not terrified of people. Hey, plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the tuneuphq at gmail.com. Two Ps in there. Don't forget it. You can tweet at us, DM us at the tuneuphq on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Benny on Twitter at Benny Horowitz1, number one in your minds, number one in your hearts, number one on Twitter. Really enunciated the Twitter there. I am at Benny underscore Gallagher. (laughs) Um, Benny, you got anything else? Yeah, just justice for Ahmaud Arbery, and everybody love everybody this week. And put some pants on, please, people. (laughs) You're adults. This has been The Tune-Up.